Renner here. Uh, in this episode of the Social Review podcast that you're about to listen to, I interviewed Joni Farragher of the Manx Labour Party. I've been asked by Michael, our podcast wizard, to give a brief preamble about the Isle of Man and its constitutional arrangements and such like, and about its politics a bit, uh, for those of you who don't have any context and don't know that at all. If you want to skip ahead, because you do know that stuff, go to... Five minutes and four seconds. ...to get to the actual interview. Okay, so, the Isle of Man, also known as Man two ends is an island in the middle of the irish sea which by the way both my parents are from uh, between the island of great britain and the island of ireland with a population of around eighty-five thousand people it's got a long and interesting history which i won't get into here but the long and short of it is it's not and never has been part of the united kingdom it's its own self-governing system it has its own courts as we'll discuss legislature etc however the queen among her titles is now is the lord of man that's a title that the Crown holds authority over the Isle of Man. And Guernsey and Jersey, actually, the other so-called Crown dependencies, comes from the Crown in its executive role, not its legislative one. At a push, technically, the UK Parliament can, through orders in council, legislate to affect the Isle of Man, and the orders in council is something that the executive does. So, for a UK context, when the Parliament was prorogued, that was done by an order in council because that's the Queen acting, or the Crown, or the Government acting with an executive hat on, because of the Crown in Parliament, which is what happens when laws are passed. But doing so without consent is just extremely rare and would be controversial if it occurred. Um, There is a Lieutenant Governor on the island, who is the monarch's personal representative to the island. Rather like the role of the Queen in UK politics, in modern times they, they don't really do much. It, it is complicated though, I'm summarising all of this. The Isle of Man also has its own parliament, Tinwald. Tinwald is of uncertain age, but it's pretty old. Rather like the UK parliament, it's got two branches. The Legislative Council, the upper chamber, whose members are either indirectly elected by the lower chamber, or are on by dint of their office, e.g. they're the Bishop of Soda and Man, whose diocese covers Man. Uh, think of it as basically like the House of Lords, but without any kind of lords really. Then there's the lower house, the House of Keys. Members here are directly elected, there's 24 of them, with 12 constituencies essentially on the island, each sending two members via essentially first past the post, but the kind of first past the post where you you have two votes. The chief minister is the head of the Manx government. They are appointed by the lieutenant governor, lieutenant governor as a representative of the queen, like the prime minister is appointed by the queen in the UK. So they would normally be a member of the House of Keys, but they can be a member of the Legislative Council. Uh, at the moment it's a man called Howard Quayle. Uh, it should be noted the House of Keys is not very partisan. Currently there are 23 independent members and one member of the Liberal Vanin Party. In, in recent times the Manx Labour Party have often had at least one MHK themselves, but they don't currently. People born on the Isle of Man can get like British citizenship, have British citizenship, but they were never part of the EU, which means if you were a Manx person born on the island with no connection to the UK via residency or descent, you didn't get like freedom of movement rights to the EU, you weren't really an EU citizen, although there were some exceptions to your rights there. But in normal times, uh, the border has been closed due to COVID more than a year, though it's open again now. Normally there's free travel and residence between the Isle of Man and the UK for British citizens, but not an automatic right to work there. You do need a permit. Uh, the Isle of Man has its own international identity, so the UK won't act on behalf of the Isle of Man in international affairs. The UK respects the Isle of Man's interests may differ from its own, but it is not an independent state, and external security and defence is handled for the Isle of Man by the UK. Fun Renner fact, my grandpa fought in the British Army during World War II in the Manx Regiment, which is part of the Royal Artillery. It's also worth pointing out that the Isle of Man doesn't pay into the UK Treasury and it doesn't really cost it that much easier, so financially it's sort of pretty internally its own thing. The Manx language exists and is part of the island's cultural heritage. In modern times it's spoken by about maybe 2,000 people, with one Manx medium primary school on the island. 
broadly the language dwindled in the 20th century but is now bouncing back which is pretty exciting there's a small but existent manx independence current on the island but i may have my facts wrong here but i'm pretty sure they are a political force to speak of really uh, but there is a proud awareness of manx heritage and culture on the island though uh, and that's very much there okay well hopefully that gives you some context and that's useful as a crash course on the isle of man itself now on to the interview Uh, and I'm here today with Joni Farragut, who is the leader of the Manx Labour Party over in the Isle of Man, and is the candidate for the. Uh, is it? Is it? Are they still constituencies? Are they, they are. Yeah. yeah the, the the House of Keys constituency for Douglas East, uh, and uh, the Isle of Man is having its general one of its general elections on the 23rd of September. So Joni is standing for that, and she is standing for the Manx Labour Party as a whole. And so we've invited her here on the Social Review podcast because. We wanted to chat to someone who is engaging in the business of advocating for social, social democracy uh, somewhere which is not in the UK, but not so far from us. And so thank you so much for coming on, Jenny. I wonder if you could start by just saying a little about where you're coming from, what you do when you're not being doing what you do and why it is you found yourself leading the leading the Manx Labour Party. So I guess um, I've. I was born and raised on the Isle of Man. I went to university um, in England to two separate locations. And I, I suppose my childhood might have formed some opinions about social inequalities. And then as an, as an adult, I've always worked in social care settings. Um, at the moment, I work with children who are bereaved. And I guess I've just seen time and time again that people's chances in life can come down to luck or the opposite of that misfortune. Um, yet our society is set up in such a way that um, people can have the double whammy of being blamed or disadvantaged or um, judged for that misfortune. And so I just seen the issues that people have faced time and time again really kind of solidify those views upon social inequalities and politicise me, I suppose, in, in seeing those things around me. I joined the Manx Labour Party in uh, 2015. I was elected as a Green Issues Coordinator um, in 2016, just shortly before um, the IPCC's special report the impact of 1.5 degrees hit the headlines so that was and indeed I suppose on the island I I don't know the degree to a degree to which climate change is going to affect the island but I have to assume it will the effects are predicted to be fairly substantial right are green issues a hot button issue on the island yeah absolutely I mean you'd have to you you would definitely get different answers from different demographics (laughs) which I guess is exactly the same as the UK Uh, but this is absolutely no question that climate change will be one of the major um, factors influencing this election and then its outcome. Um, so yeah, having been the Green Issues Coordinator for the Manx Labour Party for a few years, our leader then decided that it, it was his time was to step down, his time was kind of done. And we had a leadership contest, which which I decided to run for oh, and wow. was um, in June 2020 as leader. Congratulations so, to that. Thank you um, very much. And can, I, can I ask, could you talk a little for our listeners who are maybe in the base in the UK and don't know much, um, what's the history of the Manx kind of Labour Party and for like Labour organising in the island? You know, I mean, I know that like I mean, currently you don't have any MHKs. Hopefully that will change, of course, at this election. But, but the party has existed for best, a good part of a century, right? So like I was wondering, like, where did that 
what are its roots and sort of what are its history to, up to the present day? Yeah, so the Manx Labour Party was actually founded in 1918. It's the oldest political party. There were three political parties on the island. And um, like I said, the Manx Labour Party is the oldest by quite a long, quite a long way. It was really founded sort of from the social inequalities of the First World War. And it came, there was a, there was what's known now as the great bread strike that occurred on the island, um, which was when bread stopped being subsidised, the working class uh, couldn't, could no longer afford a loaf of bread. And there was just a huge raft of, of very well attended strikes, you know, very well engaged with um, strikes across the island. And the Ranks Labour Party was formed from the turmoil of that, I suppose. Um, it was really formed to be the uh, political uh, voice of the unions. And uh, that, that, you know, that we don't have the same relationship with the unions as the other labour movements do. For example, the UK um, Labour Party, we don't have such a, um, such a powerful connection, but that's always there, of course. And yeah, like you say, we have always been continuously represented in our parliament up until last year, which unfortunately um, was when David correctly decided to step down, who was the former, the former leader of the Manx Labour Party. Right. And so our general election this, being this year, we're hoping to... What's your, I mean, obviously, uh, like any party standing for election, you'd love it if you won every every constituency but what, what do you what do you what is a realistic kind of what would be a great success in your eyes but a, re, a realistic great success um, yeah so we've we're fielding three candidates in this election there are 12 constituencies and yeah. um, we're fielding three candidates so obviously our, our great success story there would be if all three of us uh, managed to get elected so we can have three members and hopefully members from other parties as well so that we can form um, like-minded coalitions. So the, 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 my understanding is that even uh, that the House of Keys operates in a fairly collaborative way. Is that would is that would you say that's a fair characterization? So even if you're a, a small minority within the House, you'll have a your 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 party will have a voice. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, because most people are independents, I guess there isn't as much. I don't think it would go down very well in the island anyway. That kind of um, I don't know the way that it is in the UK, where it's so very polarized and there's a lot of um, infighting and, and there's sort of insults shouted at each other across the house and things. I don't think that would go down very well over here. It's just not this not really the same sort of way that it's run although there is essentially a kind of double faction in there because you've got the backbenchers versus the council of ministers or co-min as people call it um so there is there is an effective opposition and and kind of government body in the house you know so obviously that the the economic context of the the island is very different from back in 1918 when when your party was founded i mean i i uh you'd know much better than me but like you know the island has gone through a period since then of having a big you know tourism as its big kind of economic driver and that's maybe less true nowadays and of course unfortunately one of the reasons a lot of people in the uk hear about the island is because it gets talked about as a tax haven or whatever and i i don't agree that's a fair characterization but you know it's certainly true that a lot of there's a lot a lot of financial you know i have relatives on the island who are employed in kind of the financial industries it's a big employer on the island or whatever so how how is that as that's changed over time, you know, is that still where the economic future of the island is going to lie in like having those kind of industries based there? Do, do you think that's going to, I mean, clearly, you know, you, everyone on the island wants it to continue to be a prosperous place, but like, do you, will, yeah, will that yeah. continue? Well, I, I don't see how it can really, but I mean, we've, 
we've just seen what Biden's done with. I'm, a, you know, I am an internationalist. I think yeah. that we should be we should be pulling our weight in terms of morality and and, and ethics anyway. Um, so would would have already been questioning our zero ten uh, corporation tax. Right. But you know, I think Biden has changed the the, the global outlook there. I don't think that it's any more. Um, anybody can pretend that it's it's economically viable for us to um, to carry on pursuing that, and uh, that's that is there's no two ways about it. It's going to have huge repercussions on the island, and it's yeah. it's it's not going to be popular. But it, it we we have to face reality. We we do have to accept that that's going to have a knock on effect on us, and we therefore need to take you know preemptive measures. So. So, I mean, I, this comes down to some degree about the relationship between the UK and the UK government and the Manx government. Um, like, I, I don't know the degree to which if the UK government, essentially because of Biden putting pressure on, on them, wants to force the Crown dependencies like the Ireland to change their rules, can they make you do that? Is that a thing that, they, you know, I, what I don't know loads about actually how those relationships work between the Manx government and the UK. Right. So, yeah, I, I wouldn't. I mean, it is true that the UK, um, with Ireland being, a, as you call it, a crown dependency, um, it is true that we, we they could force us. I don't think it would be necessary because, um, you know, the Isle of Man is, is very highly regulated as I mean, I think that's what people don't really understand, maybe about um, low tax jurisdictions, is that actually most of them are, are very, very highly re- regulated and, and are very uh, watertight in terms of their um, adherence to right. to international right. law. So I, I really don't think there would be any situation in which the UK right. was it well, was they, felt like they needed to impose that law. I think it would be adopted automatically. Which is good. I mean, I didn't mean to suggest that you know you you guys wouldn't, but just like obviously yeah, yeah. That, that political relationship is a, the Isle of Man is essentially independent. But like that political relationship is one certainly I found as a child of Manx parents on living in in living in the UK all my life. People don't really have a clue what that relationship is. And no, that's it's right. Not, it's not the case that the UK government can just say what to do and you do it. That's not the case at all. But like it's so. Um, do you think as international law changes and the island therefore has to change to adapt? What do you think the economic future for the island is going to look like? Are people deciding to have those kind of conversations? Yeah, it's it definitely people are having these conversations now. And I think that it would have to be a, numer- a, a number of things that would replace um, that sort of finance sector. But one of the big things that I've been really wanting us to get into the years and I think would be a huge bonus for us is ecotourism, because... Um, our island I've you know I've traveled I traveled to many many places in the world there is nowhere more beautiful than the Isle of Man there genuinely is not I don't want this to turn into a, um, an advert you know at <laughs> the time when I'm talking to my friends I feel like I'm advocating for the Manx Tourism Board because you know I used to visit the island at least twice a year in my childhood certainly with with both sides of my family there and oh there's so many it's such a beautiful place there's so many be- you see I'm doing it now but yes I mean I know exactly what you mean it's 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 a really lovely place and and we don't we just just don't take advantage of that enough i think we don't make enough of a deal about it we're not we don't appreciate it really because it's on our doorsteps i think you know we just don't realize what we've got but it's so rich in culture and history as well you know there is just so much i I, honestly i remember when i was in new zealand we we went on a lot of tourist trails there was one tourist trail that was for some guy who had a record collection in his in his basement you know it's kind of like how how is this a thing that we're all following this tourist trail and there's some serious serious um fascinating history that over here that we've we've never thought to make a tourist trail for and that only certain people know about right um, so i really wow. do think that if we put some money into that 
um, we, it, you know, we could really get some some good stuff back from that. And it would, you know, it would raise our reputation internationally. It would be ethically sound. It, it, it would just, there's just no kind of drawbacks to it as far as I can see. Would you, um, so obviously in terms of links between the island and um, the mainland, sort of on either side, both, both the island of Ireland, and and great britain you know at the moment it's you can fly there or you can take the ferry are there eco questions about how you uh, like do the ferries need kind of updating for a new age are there questions about flying in a kind of a newer eco world like are those kind of conversations that people are having yeah i mean because at the moment we do have some cruise tourism and there's some talk about building a deep water berth in Douglas Harbour, which I obviously hope would happen. And that's that's a conversation that is being had in terms of our, um, well, the the involvements that we have financially already in the the cruise tourism industry Uh and as as well as our own ferry service, which you know, I don't know whether you know, but a couple of years ago was nationalised. Was is Steam Packet like completely owned by the Manx government nowadays? Mm, that's right. So it, it's, it's nationalised, which is quite quite good from a socialist democratic point of view. Yeah. I would say. Yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> and, I'm, I'm, I certainly believe so. And there are talks about. I mean, I don't know how realistic these talks are, but at the moment, we I think the island is struggling with um, being serviced by um, flight routes. So I think there is some talk about bringing back Manx Airlines. I was certainly looking, I've just, I've just moved to Manchester and I was saying, well, how much would it be just to pop over? And I thought, actually, I mean, if I, if I go up to say Liverpool, over, it, the airfare is cheaper, but it's like 200 quid to go from here to the island. And you're like, that's like 40, it, it is far cheaper to pop to Spain than it is to an yeah. island like a spit away. Yeah, it, it's it, it's a struggle, I think. For that's, that, that, that is something that would have to be seriously looked at if we were obviously going to going to sort of follow the um, idea of ecotourism. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't think that that's an insurmountable problem. No. You know, I just think that we have to be a lot more efficient and targeted and smart with the way that we um, not only not only present ourselves, but also the way that we negotiate with um, with companies and, and corporations who could serve us better. I have occasionally joked, I don't know if you know, but obviously Boris Johnson, our, our, the Prime Minister here, uh, has talked about the idea of a bridge from Scotland to Ireland. And I've said, well, clearly the thing to do is to make the Isle of Man the, the transport hub and bridges across the Irish Sea and just you know, a, little, a little loop around the island. Uh, although I don't want to say that too loudly because he might actually think that's a good idea. But um... <laughs> I'm sure that he was talking briefly about using the Isle of Man as some sort of yeah, yeah, yeah. stopover in some plan that he had. I, I, uh, I'm just not quite, sure that would, not quite sure that would work. So, um, yeah. is the island? Does it have an aging population? Are, are you having That's, concerns yeah. as we are in the UK about um, kind of social care and? those kind of increasing pressures because that's those certainly are very pressing issues over here huge issues over here i would say far more so than the uk unfortunately because um as our our, as our population ages um our young people are kind of leaving in droves really because they they do cite lack of opportunity they also cite the property market which is just i mean it's crazy really you know it's just ridiculous trying to get a house for young people on the island and obviously like a lot of issues the pandemic has completely exacerbated it. Um, our housing market is, is effectively being gained by offshore wealthy investors. 
um, who will drive property prices up by snapping them up and they just leave them vacant for a couple of years and then sell them on. It's far higher than the interest rate of um, that the banks will give you for that kind of money. But it just means that there's no there's no chance of, a, of young people getting on the property market. And you know that when there's when there's such a, a sort of lack of opportunity there and a lack of quality of life for them, well, who can who can blame them for leaving? Really, I suppose. So we really do need to get on top of that with an ageing population and young people leaving. Do you see any future for the island in terms of encouraging companies who want to open up, say, like R&D facilities or whatever to sort of, you know, I mean, I've lived in the UK, places like Cambridge, which have seen massive benefits from like basically companies kind of both basing themselves there and doing like science and R&D. Obviously, they had the advantage that there's a university there. Do you think there might ever be a future for the island basically encouraging that sort of investment there of like people coming here to build their R&D facility, build it, which, of course, would then have a knock on effect of hopefully providing a more attractive place and better jobs for your young people to stay on the island? Is that a serious thing or do you think that would ever be workable? Yeah, and I think that's yes, definitely. I think that's something that if we specialised in, you know, two or three areas, it could be it could definitely be something that, that would work for us. And um, I think the, the major the major problem with that is that we've we've never really had, well, a bit of a sweeping generalization, but we've not had enough people in leadership positions who were innovative and creative and brave enough to do that. And that's what that's what we really do need to change because sometimes you do have to actually take that leap. Yeah. And say there's there's no there's no reason that we can't do that. You know, statistically speaking, there's no reason that we shouldn't have talented young people who who can you know really really lift our reputation. So in, in many ways, in the population, you know, you are as, as large as say some towns in the UK who have really seen massive financial success by you know especially in the over here in sort of the post 1992 kind of settlement of new universities where these things. Uh, for some places in the UK of comparable population size, obviously governance wise, vastly different to the island have, you know, massive, massive economic centers for those mm. kind of places. I mean, like, I don't, I'm not saying that, you know, the University of the Isle of Man is going to open anytime soon, but like that, that, that what you, exactly you say about specializing in a kind of couple of key areas and then having that kind of, as you say, kind of faith and innovation to drive something forward. I mean, and it feels yeah. in line with what I understand kind of social democratic values to be about kind of that investment going forward and moving together as a society. So it's good to hear you sort of supporting that kind of thing for the island. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we do have University College Isle of Man. Oh, sorry. Right. Uh, okay, great. Yeah. We do. Yeah. And um, I would say that they're doing good things for their size, but um, and that, that could really, really be built upon and capitalised upon right. if... If, like I say, if we had people in leadership positions who who had that kind of drive and and you know, I guess bravery just to take that extra step. Well, I, I obviously I hope you know, I, I I can dream, but you know, I hope one day I'm talking I'm talking to Joni Farragher, first minister, who can. Uh, you know. <laughs> uh, I know you work in. You, you said you work with children who are bereaved. How, how do you? And certainly, I know the pandemic has had an effect on like mental health. For lots of people have you have you are you seeing that effect on the island i mean the island is locked down much more heavily than the uk did essentially travel in and out has been difficult or impossible at times are you seeing uh, a kind of a mental health effect on your communities yeah absolutely yeah um very sadly suicide rates really rapidly spiked over 2020 obviously we don't have 2021 uh, results yet but it was 
it was really um, tough for a lot of people. I think just like everywhere in the world, but existing mental health issues were just magnified um, so so much under lockdown conditions. Um, and I think that we just, you know, I know it's easy to say with hindsight, but we just didn't really factor in mental health issues. Um, I think when we when we locked down, and we're seeing the effects of that now. There's a, our our mental health services like again like many across the world have been chronically underfunded for years um and and that that's there were already huge waiting lists it was already not fit for purpose not because of the practitioners who who i've met and who are brilliant but because of its its structure and its 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 lack of resources um so yeah we've definitely been feeling the effects of the um i guess the mental health fallout from the pandemic and and probably will be for a long time yet. So that's one of the crises that, that we're facing as far as I'm concerned. And, and, and that's something that I've been talking about in relation to the general election as well, is how, how are we going to actually address this? What, yeah, what do you think the first things to do should be in terms of like, you know, post-election, you know, the, the House of Keys are getting together. What what other things do you think need to be done? Like first off the bat, let's let's just get this, let's get these things done. Across the board, you mean, or are you just talking about? I was talking, talk, I was thinking about mental health, but yeah, actually, yeah, across the board, you know, when you let's say Max Labour Party is successful, you get your three candidates in, and you you know you come together with your colleagues across the house, and you're talking about okay, this is what we this is what we want to see done. What do you think? What 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 are the things that need to happen? Oh, okay, <laughs> um, so just to start from, I guess, mental well-being or mental health, because that was what we were talking about in the first instance. I um. I spent quite a lot of time studying the New Zealand model and that was so the key the key sort of element that you can track your, the success or otherwise of your mental health services is your suicide rate um, and so that is your outcome is to, to bring the suicide rate down and that the way that New Zealand managed to effectively do that um, was by a research-driven community-based support service um, that um, it was a postvention and prevention service that communi- communicated confidently with each other and with trained staff. And they went from the community, they went out to the community instead of the current model where the community has to come to you to an appointment. And um, it was the other way around. It was an inverted um, relationship, which obviously makes a lot more sense. As everybody knows, people who are suffering from mental health issues, the first thing that goes is your resilience and your drive to help yeah. yourself, your motivation to actually understand what you're going through and try and help yourself. So that that would be the first thing would be to try to bring that in in order to bring down our suicide rates. Gosh, I mean, there's so many things that, that do you know, when somebody asks you a big question like that, your mind goes. Yeah. Like, <laughs> One of the things I would like to do, though, is reverse our. Um, this is quite specific. I don't know what you would call it. I think you might call it universal credits, but it's um, it's called employed persons allowance over here where um, single parent families are able to access a little bit of financial support working single parent families. Our current administration have have tightened the eligibility for that um, quite shamefully, I would say, in a 23-minute debate. And um, there was not not really very much real opposition. They did have to put that off because of the pandemic, the the, that coming in. So that would be one of the first things I would be looking to do if I get in in September is is to actually reverse that piece of of legislation. Um, Another thing that I would be looking to do with regards to housing would be to ban offshore property speculation. From what you were saying before, banning offshore property speculation just just seems to make sense, right? Because, yeah, yeah, there's nothing wrong necessarily with people on the island engaging in a property market. There's certainly a problem we're seeing in the UK, especially for like 
markets like London or something like that. But yeah, on somewhere like the island, I mean, it just, yeah, it must be horrendous, the effect it has. Yeah, it is. It really is. And I think that they've seen quite similar things in some other island communities. New Zealand had to, New Zealand did a similar thing where they banned offshore property speculation, which was because of the pandemic. Um, exactly the same scenario, really, as, as what we've got. Um, so I think the, the solutions are there. That's what kind of, I suppose that's what does get to me a little bit that we, we see these issues happening across the world and we do see countries successfully actually addressing these issues. Yeah. And so I, I just don't I kind of, I guess I don't really understand why we're not looking to those countries and thinking we don't have to reinvent the wheel. You know, maybe we are a bit small to actually be innovative in every single area, but that we don't have to be in order to actually you know turn our society around a little bit for the better it's really interesting here you talk about you know referring to different island communities across the world because you're right i mean you know across the globe there are people in very different life circumstances that are living on very different islands but often that these concerns and these constraints are the same and so i think it's really interesting you're talking about learning from those experiences and i think it's something that in the uk i mean we are still an island we're still we're we are larger than the island man but we are still an an island that I think often we don't look at other countries and think about what were you know we, we don't you know we, we don't really look anywhere else other than the UK sometimes and we just talk talk among ourselves and we don't go oh what's working over there so it's really great to hear a politician just saying yeah we should look at other countries and look at what they do um, yeah well I do think that that you know you've got to have a bit of humility as well haven't you and, and recognize that actually I'm only one person I don't have every single answer for every single problem you know I, I cannot possibly and to actually claim that I, I I would would surely be you know kind of a bit duplicitous from the outset so I don't I don't think that there's anything wrong with saying look you know we want to we want to have evidence-based policies so therefore let's look to other countries to see what actually does work and um and, and see if that can work in our country as well you know so I have uh I'm LGBT myself I'm, I'm, a, I'm a queer trans woman um, and actually, I have, uh, I do know people on the island who are LGBT. I, I was wondering, you know, nowadays, actually, the island's laws are pretty great and I think equitable, or even better in some ways, as regards to the UK. But like, do you think there's still work to do on the island in terms of some of that equalities agenda stuff, maybe not just on LGBT, but on other things too? And if so, do you think that's a, I mean, do, do you perceive it as a generational thing that young people are even more accepting and open about these things and it will just sort of happen naturally over time? Or do you think there are kind of positive things that can be done to, make that change happen faster mm, good question um so i would say there's probably still work to be done definitely and um, we've we just had a oh, well okay so let's just rewind a little bit apparently when i was a child we did have quite serious high level of pros- uh, persecution sorry um by our then police force um against the lgbt community which which i i'm shocked to know about now and you know it's it's quite shocking the level of of it and um so this year i don't know if you know but we did have our first pride festival i, I was um, asking i wasn't sure if you had but that was really great to hear and it was absolutely amazing it really really was one of the i mean i think you really did get that sense that things have changed very rapidly so there's a local campaigner and i'm sure he won't mind me mentioning his name he's very kind of public and his name's alan shay um who was a young man you know a sort of young like in his early 20s at that time and was one of the people who had been regularly persecuted and campaigned for years you know has spent his whole life basically trying to um trying to campaign for human rights in in this area 
And so he was there at Pride and it was, I think it was very emotional for a lot of people. And you really did get that, that sense that things have changed very rapidly. And that is such a positive thing. But we can also remember what's what's been happening in, in quite sort of recent times. Well, I think it was 1992 was when the law was changed to make uh, the, the it was became legal for people to be gay together. And like I was born in 1992. I mean, it, it really is crazy. Yeah. To, to to think that that was happening so recently, I think right. it's just. And you had your first gay first minister. A few, I think he came out near the end of his political career. I don't know the circumstances about that necessarily, but you had your first gay first minister a few years ago. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. The chief minister, um, Alan minister, Bell. Sorry, yeah. It was, yeah. I mean, it, I, I don't even, I didn't know that he had come out during, I think it was just a, one of those things that was an open secret. I don't think. I yeah, that, that was vaguely the impression I got that like everyone knew. And then he sort of felt the need to say, oh, by the way, but like, <laughs> yeah, it's like yeah. I mean, he, yeah, he'd, I think, he'd been yeah. a bachelor for a long time, if you see what I mean, or whatever. So, and I, I just feel like things have changed so quickly that we can't lose that momentum, I guess. Um, because I, I, you know, I do know um, people in trans community over here, and I think people have different experiences. Some people would say, well, it's not too, it's not too bad, but I do, but I do get approached in the pub sometimes and asked to explain something, or I do get shouted at from a truck window. And I think, well, that is actually bad. How can you say that's not, you know, that's, that's their perception that that's not actually that bad. Well, that, that's, I, 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 I put, that probably wouldn't register for me. And I've not. Yes, the bar is so low there that that's what people are saying. It's not that bad that I'm getting heckled in the street and <laughs> could I ask a, a technical question about that I appreciate you might not know the answer um so an issue we have very much over here especially in England actually Wales have made really great strides recently uh in this regard but you know gender services on the NHS that are our NHS here in the UK and obviously because that's devolved it's different in Scotland and Wales as I say that can be really hard to access um if you have a transitioning person in the, in the island and they want to access those kind of services do you I, I'm, I'm assuming it might be the case. I know this is the case, for instance, in say Northern Ireland. Uh, you know, they have to basically be referred to the clinic in London. Does something similar similar happen for people in on the island? Like, how does that how does that kind of work? Yeah, right. So I I, I don't actually know the internet, but I have heard people saying that they had to go to the UK. I don't think it was London. Um, somewhere in the northwest. Okay, that's. Um, I, I think you know I, I think that is one of the things that that people have said that they would like to see happen is is you know a clinic over here that because obviously we'll have the same statistical amount of our population right exactly um, I, think, I mean I, what I would say at the very least is uh, and I'm happy to put you in touch with that I, I know a couple of researchers who've been doing some work in like what models work but I think Wales have been trying some new they've got a I think there's a clinician there who has been doing some better innovative work on like how to make them work better because to be honest the old ones here in the UK are not models to copy <laughs> you know they're very of mm. their time and although they are improving and we have some pilot programs over here to kind of make them better you know as you say if the island is going to be innovating and doing some stuff I would look to places that are doing it a bit better than say yeah England. yeah exactly um, I mean I'll, I'll be honest no offense but I don't I wouldn't advocate really copying very, very much of what the UK does I, I, <laughs> I, 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 I mean given given that my party hasn't been in power for at least 10 years I I wouldn't I would take no offense at all but but as I say I, I would say look towards the Welsh model that they've been moving towards yeah. and in some ways you know they have issues about uh like rural populations and access to things which i suspect are not going to be the same on the island but might not be a million miles away from kind of concerns from like issues that you might have which are very different to like populations that are serving 
people in like really big really big cities that we have in the UK, which is just also you might not want to copy them, but also just not they're not going to make sense at all. And as you say, I, I don't know what island communities across the world do, but presumably they have different models and stuff. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I'd, I'd like to see what Jersey and Guernsey do maybe as well, sort of. Right. Yeah, I, I don't. And I just I don't know offhand myself. I just sorry. We've kind of gone down a rabbit hole here purely because no, no, I know about. But like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess uh, I want to round off by just asking if you had if you had like one message that you'd say to people who aren't from the island but want to learn more about it or connect to it or visit it for tourism or whatever what would be your like one message to be to like the people who might be listening to this podcast who are I'll be honest probably like social democracy nerds who live in the UK it's a tough one isn't it that <laughs> how, how I, can I sell I, my I, little I, island I, 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 I mean I, I appreciate it's not really your it's not who you're who you're normally talking to but just like yeah I mean um, uh, it's um do you know I think that we've got some really, really good, um, accidentally, sorry, got some really good um, socialist democratic um, ethics going on in our island because most of our services are nationalised. Um, and that's, you know, that is all to the good. So we can start from that. We can start from that and we can sort of build upwards. But in terms of tourism, you know, honestly, I have travelled many, many countries. I've travelled for most of my 20s. Um, I have seen some amazing places. I really, really have. And um, but when I got back here, I realised that actually it's the most beautiful place in the world. Um, particularly in summertime. Okay, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna pretend that um, a January day on the <laughs> on the Isle of Man is um, you know is is the most beautiful place in the world. But even that bleak winter la- landscape is amazing. As I say, I have fond memories of. I mean, the Christmas lights along Douglas Promenade are always spectacular and just you know I mean I I would say from our childhood there there are some beautiful places there in the winter but thank you Jenny for talking because I think one of the things I wanted to bring out this podcast is that although it's a very beautiful place that people can visit there's there are people who live there and they have political lives and these complicated issues and I and I really wanted to help you kind of tell those stories so thank you so much for talking to me welcome it's been great chatting with you actually and any last comments I guess just to sort of keep keep the faith, keep the hope up, really. You know, I think that in, I know that in the UK, and obviously I've got a lot of friends and family, you know, just like everybody on the other man has, it might seem yeah. a little bit bleak for you all right now, you know, but you're just at the bottom of the, of the wheel, things will go back up, you know, so just keep having those conversations and, you know, things, things will get better. Keep hope. <laughs> Thank you, Jenny. <laughs> And that brings us to the end of another episode of the Social Review Podcast. If you enjoyed this week's episode, please feel free to share it on the social media platform of your choice. It helps the show out massively. And if you have any questions you'd like to ask us, you can at us on Twitter at SockReviewPod, email us SockReviewPod at gmail.com or leave a response to the Google form that you can find on our Twitter. Our music is The Dance by Kyle Cox, licensed under Creative Commons. Thank you for listening and have a fantastic rest of the day.